Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Book Club. Our guest this time is author Bradley Morgan. Bradley has written a book that came out recently called You Two's The Joshua Tree, Planting Roots in Mythic America. What this book is, in fact, first of all, I should tell you, it reads a lot like one of those 33 and a third books. I think everyone loves those. In fact, it's even a similar length. It's a dissection of what was going on in America from a socio-political perspective in 1987 that inspired you two to even write and record the Joshua Tree and then compare the state of the country then with how things are today. As you can probably imagine, some things are the same, some are worse, a lot are worse, and some things are better. So we get into this conversation about, you know, what inspired all the songs. The, the book goes track by track. He also has a lot of personal experience attached to the album, the band, Ireland as a Country, which he talk, talks about in here as well. It's a really interesting and thoughtful uh, dissection. Also, what I think makes this conversation even better is that we brought on a podcaster's best friend, Carly Anderson. Carly's one of our Patreon supporters. She's also one of the biggest U2 fans I know. She's very educated, highly intelligent. And I thought between the three of us, hopefully we can have a very informed and uh, educated conversation about, again, music and politics and how they intersect, where they intersect, and where things are today. So I think you're going to like this conversation. I, who doesn't love the Joshua Tree? And Bradley writes a really thought-provoking book about it. Here it is. Bradley, why did you, of all people, feel like you needed to write a book about an album that's been out 30 years? In fact, I believe it, was, it came out the year you were born. So do you have like an emotional connection to this book that you just had to get off your chest? What sparked it? I always had a, a fascination with you 2 on a level that didn't quite make sense to me uh, when I was first listening to them. It, it's when you listen to you 2 your relationship changes over the years, depending on where you're at in your life and your philosophies and just what's going on. But there was something that always kind of just struck me about their music. And looking back now, it was just a sense of optimism and refusal of cynicism. I, I've never really been a cynical person. I tend to view cynicism very negatively. It's not something I like in my life. It's not something I like in in, in people around me. I know there's times where we can be cynical. I mean, that's part of human nature. But when... Trump was elected, and I started to have conversations with people about his presidency and the impact on American culture and more broadly on a, on a global scale. It got me thinking more deeply about inherent responsibilities that we all have, not just as Americans, but as just general global citizens. And when I kept thinking about what I could do personally to not devolve into that cynicism and to stand up for principles I believe in, I kept coming back to you too. And it was when I saw the uh, the 30th anniversary of the Joshua Tree tour that things were starting to hit at home for me. And I and the origin of this book came from a blog post that I had written for my uh, community radio station's blog, uh, Chirp Radio 107.1 FM here in Chicago. Good. And it was just about life reflections at, 
turning 30, it, you know, as with the album turning 30 as well. And I just kind of marinated on it. And then by the, the end of 2018, when things got a little bit more, you know, hairier or worse w- with the Trump administration, certain things were b- being cemented. And I felt like I had even more to say mm-hmm. about the narrative that I was finding in this album. And what I wanted to elevate about this album wasn't just here's a, the making of the Joshua Tree or, mm-hmm. you know, it was why this still resonates today. It's, it's, it's um, yearning for hope, for optimism, and why this is increasingly more important. Mm-hmm. And as we consider the after effects of the administration, such as the insurrection, mm-hmm. these things are incredibly more important. I'm currently reading uh, Dr. Timothy Snyder's book on tyranny. And in part of that book, he talks about how having that kind of optimism and working with people who aren't like you and working with different ideas is how we challenge or even combat, well, combat, I don't like that, it's a pretty strong word, but 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 battle authoritarian principles. And mm-hmm. these are all elements that I ultimately find in this album. And that's what I wanted to share with, with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a, I have a question actually for both of you. I'm curious, you Carly, as someone who has lived with this album, like I have our entire, Mm -hmm. since it came out yeah. and then Bradley, you being someone who's, who's seen felt the significance as you've gotten older, how has this, and I'm going to start with you, Carly, how has this album shaped your political views, your sense of right and wrong or, you know, how you see the world? That's a great question. And I think, you know, I, I'll, Bradley's books actually touches on this as well. It's, it actually started a little before the Joshua tree. I did see the tour in 87. I was 14. It was life-changing because it was an incredibly optimistic and diverse audience and very engaged with the music, but it was the Amnesty International Conspiracy of Hope tour that preceded that, that really awakened me to everything going on in the world that I wasn't necessarily as, as a, as attuned to before you two. And that started a lifelong relationship with Amnesty International, with, you know, the I would say sort of the sort of resistance and optimism that you talk about. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's really carried me for the last 35 plus years. So yeah. um, definitely. Yeah. What about you, Bradley? How has how has the spirit or the intention of what the Joshua Tree is as a piece of art influenced you throughout your life? Well, I really actually didn't really hear this album in its entirety until I was about 20. I bought the album at a record store. I knew who U2 was. I knew the big hits, but I had um, a couple of their CDs. But listening to that album front to back didn't happen until I was in college. I first became really cognizant of U2 when All That You Can't Leave Behind came out. And I was living in Alaska. I grew up in a military family, and I and I moved around the country a lot, and I lived in other places as well, uh, Puerto Rico and Japan, and that kind of experience gave me a much broader view of just society, and to keep it within just the American, you know, you know, just keep, to keep it within America itself, I got to experience a lot of different parts of the country and a lot of different people, a lot of different ideas, and it really drove home to me that we're all trying to unite under these kind of principles and these kind of ideas. And it's messy at times, but that's what ultimately 
made me realize how universal the themes are in the Joshua Tree, that they're, they're just not applicable to a liberal elite or a coastal elite. I mean, it's very intentional why some of the songs narratives are, are set where they are. It's about the, these people in the homeland and who are at most at risk of devious policies. It's interesting. Uh, I, I agree with both of you and what you're saying. Carly and I are the same age. And so I remember being 14 years old too. And one thing that became, that struck me while I was reading your book is that the us, when, when that album came out, the issues that they were taking a stand on the, the, the enemy that they're pushing back on, it felt very much like there's the us and them is us being regular people, everybody of all political stripes and the them being any oppressive government or oppressive, whatever, uh, group that is harming anybody's, you know, uh, human rights. And what I was written now with the political temperature being what it is today, I was thinking the us and them are the people who agree with what seem to be like almost golden rule issues that are brought about in this book. And those who think that, well, that's too, that's socialism, that's fascist, that's whatever, that's too liberal. And how an album like this, which at one time in our history was such a unifier, could, would, if it came out now, be such a dissenter, it would just crack people in half. And that was not what it was meant to do. And yet in the 30 whatever years since it's been, since it came out, that's how we've changed. That's how we've devolved as people. Don't you think? I mean, it's not cool to like you two now. I mean, I hear those. those <laughs> I, I mean, that's, I, get, I get those. I have those discussions all the time with friends and colleagues, especially, you know, my age or younger. It's not cool. And it's fueled by just general cynicism or things like Bono's activism, you know, because we, we've seen so many instances of, of the of the celebrity with the fake activism and just to get the clout kind of thing. And when you have that repeated so much, it's I, I can see why it's so easy to not see someone who, like Bono, for all of his flaws as a human being, truly does remarkable things and he absolutely does, does great things. I've never and, understood to push back on that. And, and, and also, you know, things like, you know, little stunts like the, uh, the, the iPhone album songs of innocence d- d- doesn't help that uh, reputation for you two in the modern age. Um, but I, I had to push back against that. Um, you know, they, they may not be as cool. I mean, I still buy the albums and I still listen sure. to them, but um, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's generally what I, Kind of get, and you know, I, I had I had an experience o- over Halloween weekend when I was talking to someone about I had the, you know me having this book coming out, and he this person wanted to get me into a conversation. Though, well, Bono is such a rich guy, capitalist. Don't you think he's you know uh, a, a danger to society that way? And I'm like, look, okay. What you're criticizing are, are systems larger than Bono. If Bono is benefiting from this because he created something that people wanted to buy, mm-hmm. you know, great for him. I mean, you can't just be mad at someone because they've got money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Overall, Bono's life is a net positive 
when you factor in the good he mm -hmm. fights for, the causes he furthers, mm -hmm. compared to him as a capitalist or as mm -hmm. giving everyone an album that they may not have wanted for free on their iPods, God forbid, which is, the, I've always thought the dumbest thing. I want to read a quote from your book that mm -hmm. ties into the, some of this, Brad. And then I want to hear, mm -hmm. I know that this, that the 30th anniversary concert tour was a really, it, it made a big impression on both of you. And I want to hear Carly's thoughts about it in a minute. But as I should say for anyone who doesn't know, the, the book is not entirely, but each song on the album has its own chapter. And we're not going to go in each one and tell you the stories behind each song, because that's why you read the book. But there is one in the I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For chapter that speaks to everything I think we're saying here. So, And this was you, Bradley, if I, if I am reading this correctly. I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For is representative of the idea that despite the problems with America and the many ways it can overtake someone, there is something far greater to strive toward and that American America can represent an extension of God's love in the form of eliminating its destructive nationalist and racist policies, an act that requires facing and standing up against the nation's inherent evils as a means of finding what you too is looking for in the image of America they seek to uphold. And again, even as I say that, I can't think of a more universal truth. And yet, as I'm saying, there are listeners, people are listening to us right now, triggered by what I'm saying and saying, that's a bunch of liberal hogwash. You know what I mean? I, this country doesn't need to change. There's nothing wrong with it. You're the problem. Anyway, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's unfortunate. Now, let's get into this. Unless you, did you have something you want to say? Do you, want to, do you have a response to that, Bradley? So, you know, it, it, right. I, I definitely see that, uh, you know, some commentary could be suggesting that it is liberal hogwash, but that chapter it was interesting that you brought up that quote from that chapter, because I really struggled with that, um, after the George Floyd murder. Mm. And the reason why I did was the bulk of this book was written, uh, in late 2018, early 2019. And while I was trying to, pitch the book and, and develop marketing proposals and get it out there, I constantly had to go back and, and just change certain ideas. Mm. And after the George Floyd murder, we have a lot of the civil and social unrest that happened in this country as a result of, of racist policies and racist police. To take that song as an opportunity mm -hmm. to really talk about a concept that, that transcended all of that while, while not ignoring it, mm -hmm. because I had to deal with this question a lot was what, what do we now in this day and age, what do we care about what four white guys have to say about America? And why do we care what you as a white man have to say about this as well? And that's why in that chapter, I had to address um, their approach to gospel music uh, the history of whitewashing in, in rock music and appropriation of gospel, soul, and blues, and how I had to address that without losing my focus and my narrative of what this song represents and what it represents as part of the album was that there is this place that we can get to where in the lyrics are where all the colors bleed into one. And the only way we can get there is if we could recognize where we are at now. That kind of idea was very brilliantly put by uh, Springsteen and Obama in their, in their podcast and, and, and book of renegades. Um, 
But that's what I wanted to say with that was if we recognize we can't be at that place unless we recognize where we are at right now. And sometimes it's not a good place. Sometimes we have to look at ourselves in the mirror, but it doesn't mean that if we're not in a good place now, we can't be down the line. It's interesting. As you say that I'm trying to think of examples of people who would be considered on the right who are making those kinds of stands and making those kinds of statements. I can't even really think of anything. I can't think of a single one person who's, as we say, reaching across the aisle, but just offering an olive branch of, of amnesty or, or humanity to like, let's talk, you know, let's figure this out anyway. All right. One of the, if you mentioned, you touched on this earlier, Bradley, one of the, it felt like the, the, launch points for the for the reason for this book was that 30th anniversary tour which i did not get a chance to see i was hoping it would come through denver it never did did it carly it no. didn't come here no no i assumed it was going to come through here and be a big thing and i so i just thought well i'll wait and it mm -hmm. never did and then it was over and i never got to see it but you went to a few of the stops right what kind of an yeah. impact did it have on you Carly. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough. I went to opening night in Vancouver. So everything was brand new that night. That was, you know, mostly Canadian audience. And I mean, diehard fans coming in for that. So, you know, incredible reception. And that that feeling of optimism was definitely pervasive that night. I saw it halfway through the summer, halfway through the tour in Cleveland with a bunch of college friends. It was cathartic. And for us that night, it was sort of like, it was like a relief point from being in Trump's America for one night. It just felt like there was this coming togetherness that felt like a amazing release. Mm -hmm. And then the final show of the tour that I saw came to Kansas city. So it was one of mm. the final shows and it was the closest to Denver they got. So I went by myself. It was at Arrowhead stadium. And to your point about the heartland you made earlier, I met people in the GA cause I was by myself and people had driven for hours to come to this show from parts of Iowa, parts of Missouri, Oklahoma, you name it to see this show. The show ends, we're hugging, we're crying, we're happy. But I'll tell you, there's one dude in a in an American flag polo shirt standing up on a, on one of the chairs singing God Bless America at the end who was not happy with the show. Really? So there were moments, yeah, there, there are still people that show up and say, I didn't come here for the politics, which I find <laughs> hilarious. I've seen them 39 times. So I just kind of blow that off. But there's still right. people that show up and do that. Wow. I'm curious, Bradley, was it what you thought when you saw them live? That, that was not my first show with them, but I'd seen them a couple of times. Um, I went with my dad, who had an actual, he had an opportunity to go to Live Aid because he was stationed in London um, at that time. Missed it. It's, you know, I, it's, it's, it's a regret of his. So this was an opportunity for, uh, for a father and son to go see a show together. He's a very conservative man, had voted for Trump uh, both times uh, in, in uh, that he ran and um I, and i and i talk about that and i had some anxiety going into that show of like is is this going to be uh an experience that's going to be alienating for both of us mm -hmm. and, and and it wasn't i mean it was it was direct um what it needed to be but it was very inclusive as well and we and we both had a great time with that i can only imagine what a unifying experience it would be that one guy you're talking about carly that i just have to laugh <laughs> Like, why I laughed at him too. I'm like, what are you here for? Because I feel like when I see them live, God's in the room, mm -hmm. particularly when streets have no name um, comes mm -hmm. on. I feel like it really brings people together. And there, there is that optimism sense sense for that minute, right? That like, 
you know, there really is that colors bleeding into one to go back mm-hmm. to, I still haven't found what I'm looking for moment. Yeah. That reminds me, let's take a second for some levity here. Everybody's favorite song on Joshua Tree. Bradley, what's your favorite song? Oh, that's, that's changed over the years, but I think the last couple of years, I think it was One Tree Hill. And I, I that's the last song I talk about in the book. And that was an intentional. The, the, the order that I went with in the book going song by song wasn't necessarily planned, but I, I knew in my heart, I was going to have to end with One Tree Hill. Mm. Mm. Wow. Okay, Carly, what about you? Yeah, when I was a kid, it was Trip Through Your Wires, mm-hmm. but as an adult, it's definitely mellowed into With or Without You. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, um, my favorite's In God's Country, and I would say my second favorite is Trip Through Your Wires, and those are the two tracks that are like, nobody in the band ever talks about (laughs) yeah no i thought that was so interesting that like oh yeah these are the throwaway tracks and those are the two granted i mean i love all those singles too but (laughs) of course but i uh those were the ones that you know they're the underdogs that you fight for and i just uh i've always loved those songs oh and god's country is amazing yes it is thank you it is okay let me play devil's advocate for a second Let's pretend I'm one of these people that I'm the God loves America guy. And I'm like, why are a bunch of Irish people coming to my country and telling me what's wrong with it? Where, who do, where do you get off? Who are you to tell, to make these kinds of criticisms about where I live? This is the home of the free. What's better than that? What do you say to somebody like that? And what did what do you think, Bradley, empowered you to to be the spokesman for something like that at that time? Oh, I, I mean, I've, I've I've had a lot of conversations similar to that, not with this exact kind of question, though. I think my immediate reaction would be to just talk with them about just the history of, of the of, of our country, the history of America, and where we come from. I mean, this is this is a this was a nation that uh, was developed by immigrants, mm-hmm. and only within the last 100 years um, since the Spanish-American War did we have this real push for this um, America first mentality or this identity of, of an America that then you know, gets mythologized over the generations. E- even in the, uh, the book, I quote um, – a great book uh, by Sarah Churchwell. I, I don't quote the book. I quote an interview with Sarah Churchwell. The book's called Behold America. And it's about the history of the America First movement and the history of the American dream. And it's only since the 1950s that the American dream was this, you know, I get my own, I get, you know, my, the house and the cars and the, and the picket fence. This is, you know, this very individualistic sense. And, but before then it was a more collectivist idea. And it's, and I don't think it's any coincidence that that kind of individualistic thinking came at the time when it did, because of the 1950s was the post-war boom. Mm-hmm. When we, you know, were more wealthier, uh, um, you know, people had more. That's true. I wanted to read, in fact, in my notes, that quote that you just said, I had that on here circled as well. It's basically implying that what we think of as the American dream today has been co-opted to mean wealth. It's, it's been 
it's been redefined as being you, if you work hard enough, you can be as rich as you can be the next, Je- next Jeff Bezos or whatever. And isn't that what we all want is to just be as rich and powerful as we can possibly be. But at prior to that, the thought of the American dream was more about equality and more about harmony. And that sounds like a loaded word, but it was just more about everybody getting, being successful enough, everybody getting a little, everybody having a chance, you know, nobody hurting, no one falling behind, that that was the original idea of the American dream. And I thought that was a really interesting quote from her that you brought up in the book. Book. Am I saying, would you say I'm summarizing that correctly? I hope I am. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. It is a very interesting point, though, you just made, John, because it is, I think, I think I, from you two's perspective, if you think about the songs on Joshua Tree that you got to talk about in the book, they, they, America was, were defenders of, from tyranny, right? Mm-hmm. And particularly from Central America, and then to holding a mirror up to that during the Reagan years, mm-hmm. and that being kind of in question. And I think that's an interesting take you just made on the, the American Dream commentary and how it's been co-opted into wealth, but there was a time when there was held to a much higher standard, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and an album like the Joshua tree and thoughts of people like Bono are to remind us of what that original spark was. And it's that spark, the ideas, I I think we all know, Mm -hmm. most people I think know that the original intent for the album was to be called the two Americas, the one that gets the bright future and, you know, riches and capitalism is, is one America, but the reality of like oppressive racism and all that kind of stuff is the other America. That's kind of a little more real for most people. You could, if you were going to be cynical enough, say, well, like I said, where do these four Irish guys get off criticizing or even commenting on our country? It's the best in the world. It is. They know that it is. That's why they comment on it. That's why they're offering suggestions about how to fix it, how to get back to the origin, to the source that was the inspiration for it all. It was the idea. You're right. That's That cynicism, I, I think, breeds culpability because if if you were so cynical to the point where you think, well, it's always been terrible. It's always going to be terrible. There's, you're not going to have any action to try to make it better. And I can't believe that people really think that because when I think about you know um, a lot of the demonstrations that happened in 2020, that people were in the streets demanding justice because they knew that it could be better. That you know, if it is a foregone conclusion, then why even bother? I, I remember after I after I completed the first draft of the book, I actually went and visited the the actual tree that appears on the back of the album. It's mm-hmm. west of Death Valley, um, just out in the middle of nowhere. And that that tree is, you know, it's it, it fell over. I think like twenty years ago. Um, it, it's 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 not standing tall anymore. It's it's on the ground, but there's a lot of uh, it's, it's been visited over the years. It's become like a shrine. There's a lot of stuff around it. But um, I often get asked if that fallen tree symbolizes like um, uh, the, the American empire crumbling. Mm. And I think that's a very, again, cynical idea to have. And when I think about that image of that tree and I look around the environment around it and I see all these other trees standing, it actually does give me some hope because I think about that image in relation to our own our own nation's current troubles, and I think that that you know Dr. King's dream didn't die when he was assassinated. Uh, uh, John Lewis's vision for America and voting rights did not end when he was buried in the ground. Those things are are still being championed and fought for. So I can't gi- I can't give in to that idea of 
this fallen empire imagery with this tree. I think we're I think we're at a dip right now. I think it's may get worse before it gets better, but ultimately it it will get better because it has to be better because there are people out there who believe it can't be. Mm-hmm. Have you ever visited the Joshua tree, Carly? I did. It was still standing. It was mm. in, uh, I think it was the the winter of 99. I visited wow. um, it. It's always, it's a great trip. I remember that I rented a Chrysler Sebring convertible and I timed it just so I put the CD in. This was the CD era. Ooh, and nice. I, I queued it up to start streets just as I was driving into uh-huh. the park. So, yeah. Oh, yes. (laughs) That is great. You know, it's funny you saying, Bradley, what it what some people have wondered if it symbolizes like a fall in America. What it was actually symbolizing to me is a little different. I'm guessing fans are responsible for that tree falling over because of just Mm. too much activity. Like if you a couple of years ago, I visited. um, Jim Morrison's grave in that uh, in that cemetery in France and it's the the head that is there is gone Mm -hmm. because fans won't leave it alone Mm -hmm. and so what I was thinking was more about this building up and tearing down that we do with the people that we love and people you know people in popular culture wow you know what I mean that at one point (laughs) this tree stood and just as you too stood but over the years fans and indifference and selfishness or whatever tears down the tree that's a symbol of abuse of such beauty just as they tear down you two who gave them a free album they didn't want in their itunes i I never thought about it (laughs) i never thought about that way i think it fell like 2000 2001 around there and you know i mean that was all that you can't leave behind came up when they were bit, you know, that they were still huge. And I think some fans view after that is a little bit downhill after Probably. that. But, uh, no, I, I never, I never thought about that. Way. It's mm, interesting. That was, that was my own dumb thoughts. I'm not very smart. No, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you. So let's, I feel in some ways we're kind of burying a lead here, Bradley, because you, at the, at the end of the book, you finally get personal. The first three quarters of it or whatever is, explaining the making and the inspiration behind the songs and everything. And then you get personal and talk about your own journey of becoming an Irish citizen, which I didn't know you could even do. Like I, uh, I, that kind of blew me away. Talk about how your journey of becoming an Irish citizen, first of all, matters to you felt necessary and may have been inspired by you too, in some way. Yeah, so my my mother, uh, she was born in London to Irish grandparents, and born in London to Irish parents, my grandparents, Mm -hmm. and it was something that just because it was always there in my in my home, I I I took for granted. But as I started to get older, and I started thinking about what identity means in terms of like a national sense or a global sense or even individual sense, I wanted to just explore. I, different facets of myself that I hadn't really been aware of. And my my in, earliest inclination that you could have a complexity to your identity was when YouTube performed the, uh, the Super Bowl halftime show in 2002, just a couple months after September 11th. And at the end of the performance, Bono opens up his jacket and he's got this American flag. And I think to a lot of viewers that may have just been a... Um, on the surface, just a nod to this country that he that he admires and had just experienced a, a, a very significant tragedy that had, you know, huge global ramifications. 
but I, I, something hit me a little bit differently about that mm. beyond just, you know, this admiration for America. And when you think about American culture and American identity and how you can become an American, I, I started thinking, well, what if I explore those other ideas of myself that aren't necessarily American or are, are extensions of that or are tangential to that? So as I got older and my mother was doing some um, exploration on her end on, on her side of the family, I wanted to get Irish citizenship. And it just so happened around the time that I was doing this that Trump was uh, running for the presidency. And he was really aggravating because you needed to get out of jail free card. I get right, that exactly. that way too sometimes. Where can we go? Where is it still safe out there? But that that wasn't my intent. And so it was it was interesting to just try to do this going this journey for myself with my own personal reasons and then have this man co-op that in a way that was I didn't appreciate but forced me to like be a little bit more introspective about my role as an American and my identity as American and the inherent responsibility we have as Americans to make sure that we elevate each and every single one of us, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I would get, I get that comment to like, well, you know, this is your get out of jail free card. You can go. And I say, and I think, I mean, if I leave this country, it's going to be for something far greater than Trump. Mm-hmm. And there is a unacknowledged like privilege to be able to do that because if you have the ability to do that, you're putting more weight on those who are most at risk of these disastrous policies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, and, you know, something else I that was kind of striking me, I, I keep harping on this idea of like, where do these four Irish guys, but if you, you forget sometimes how integral the Irish and the Italians were in the building of America, especially up in the Northeast. You think about a movie like Gangs of New York or whatever, those, you know, that that is what places, that is what New England and New York City and all that kind of stuff, that's what it's built on. It's Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants who came here because of the spark of the idea of what America could be. Mm-hmm. And that's we have what we have today largely on the backs of those people, you know? I think who people were forget that. refugees at their time at the time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I know, I mean, let's be honest, the only refugees that bother anyone today are ones whose skin color is different than people in charge. Come all, all the Europeans you want are welcome to come into this country. But if you're from Mexico or something and you're a little darker, then we have a problem and it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, I want to, Carly had posted this question to me and I think it's a really good one. In 2022, do you think there's still a new audience out there that would embrace this album and why? And Carly, I'm going to ask you that your question back to you first. Sure, absolutely. You know, I think that there is, um, I think that there's definitely ripples of an embrace of rock and roll music again. So first of all, I think it comes from their style of music, which is really unique, but firmly grounded. And I think that perfect combination for me of, of classic rock and roll with that kind of also that undertone of like punk DIY moments, right? That really formed the basis of them in their first few albums. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is in a lot of current music, there's still that kind of sound. So I think there's definitely there something there for new listeners. I think that it's a bit on the nose sometimes and how they 
how this album kind of comes together. There isn't as much maybe metaphor. It's maybe not quite as evolved in terms of lyrically as opposed to what we are familiar with now in today's music. Yeah. But I think that could be refreshing and different. Yeah, I um, I kind of agree. It, it almost feels charming or like cute to think that an album like the Joshua Tree that's so, you know, full of ideas and so yeah. strident could actually make a difference today. And yet you just wish to God that it could something like that could, you know, what about you, Bradley? What do you think? Oh, I absolutely agree. I, I agree with everything uh, Carly was saying. I, I will only add that when you listen to the Joshua tree, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't sound like the rest of the 1980s. If you look oh. at like the top albums of, of 87 or the top singles of 87, all those other songs just sound dated. I think if you, just put someone in a, with a blind listen of the Joshua tree. I don't think they could tell you when that came out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Okay. Well, does anyone want have like a final thought or a final question or idea that they want to get off their chest? What about you? We'll start with you, Carly. Is there anything left you want to say about this? Gosh, um, all I wanted to say is I, I did want to ask you, Bradley, what was your take when they reimagined Exit playing it live mm. after having heard it on the album for so long? That was, you know, th that was a song that wasn't a song that I really gravitated to that much prior to that tour. But as I was thinking, as I had the early idea of this book and the narrative behind it, that was a song that really just kept jumping out at at me and i got really fascinated with that that shadow man character that that bono had created for that and i was exploring an, other you know cultural milestones where that kind of character exists you know i think of um night of the hunter mm. that character also um wise blood by flannery o'connor i mean who he directly quotes in that show that song really I think really kind of pushed me into thinking about the ill and cultural disease in America. Yeah. I, I opened the first song I, I talk about in the book is bullet, the blue sky, which is very direct and it's a very well-known song. And there's a, there's a storied history behind that, but with these other songs that there's less written about, that's where I got to get a little bit more creative in my exploration of it. Because there's not a lot written about Exit. There's not a lot written about Mothers of the Disappeared. Even in their official like YouTube by YouTube book, there's just not a lot said by it. So I had to go in deeper with that. And in Exit certainly was a song that, you know, in the order of the chapters, it's the first one where I directly talk about like American culture and an American figure. And that really shown in that 30th anniversary tour. Mm. Uh, another question i want to give carly credit for because she pitched it to me what was of all the songs what was the most difficult to research and again all that that's a carly question i'm quoting it from her it wasn't the most difficult to research but it was the most difficult to write about was trip through your wires mm. and again it's it's when you're writing about a when you're writing a book about an album it could be very tough and that's why a lot of these these album-based books are just about the history of it. When you're going to a, a historical or cultural analysis and you're trying to find ways to say, okay, this is how this contributes to this theme or this narrative, 
Tripodier wires was the most difficult one to do. And ultimately, what I had to kind of realize and, and build in this this overview of the mythical and real America and their fascination with it was just that, you know what, these guys were just having fun with a new sound. And if that is just an extension of their exploration of America, then that's great. It doesn't have, this doesn't necessarily have to have any larger critical overtone to it. You know, it's just them saying, you know what, we've got all these things we're trying to address, but let's just have fun with the new sound. Mm -hmm. And I think that added a bit of joy to their experience. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm going to, um, I'm going to take the final word here, but my final word is actually Bradley's words. I want to quote something back to you again that you writ wrote in the book near the end that really touched me. All of our individual problems are in ways, big or small, connected with the problems of others. The message of the Joshua tree is that all Americans are facing a struggle that can be alleviated when people unite. And I'm getting goosebumps just as I read that. I thought that was really beautiful. And um, I, uh, I even have to do some internal working on, my, on myself because I even reading those words, I sometimes trigger myself. But we all need to agree on an established set of facts first, don't we? I mean, we all have to, we all have to agree that things like Trump is bad and COVID is real and January 6th was bad. And we have to agree on those things first, and then we can unite and build from there. And that's a part of me that I probably have to get over. But um, the spirit of what you wrote when you said that, Bradley, is true, and it lives on. And um, I think that's what makes the Joshua Tree special, that back in 1987, writing an album dedicated to that idea was revolutionary and it was also really beautiful and no one i don't think could get away with that today without uh triggering half the country and making them angry and it's a shame that wasn't the case back then any final words if the reward of all this work in unifying as a country was it worth it it wouldn't be so hard mm. good point Thank you, both of you. Um, I hope I thought I thought this was a really uplifting conversation. I think we solved the world pro world's problems tonight, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, you. We tried. All right, there you have it, Bradley Morgan, and a huge special thanks to Carly Anderson. It was she made that conversation so much better. Gang, I have a copy of this book to give away. Um, I'm going to be, if you are a Patreon supporter, and as we always say, all you got to do is be a tier one Patreon supporter. It's two bucks a month. You set it and forget it. And with that, you become uh, qualified to be in the running to win any and all swag we ever have to give away. And this week, thankfully, we're giving away a copy of this book. There's actually a lot more swag to come, books and CDs. So if you're interested in being in the running for these things, join up on Patreon. If you want to be a tier two Patreon, mem Patreon member, that's $5 a month, and with that, I tell you who I'm interviewing, and you can submit questions that might be included in the interview, okay? I think everybody who are Patreon supporters would tell you it's worth it. I think, I hope. Anyway, I'm going to be drawing, um, I'll be notifying the winner of this book next Sunday, okay? So look out for that. Huge thanks again to Bradley. Huge thanks to Carly. Thanks to Yan, the man, obviously, for putting it all together. And please go check out the book. Again, it's U2's The Joshua Tree, 
Planting Roots in Mythic America. And as I said before, it's very similar to me as one of the 33 and a third books, which are always great. Okay? Thanks, folks. We love you.